Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Yes, we are officially recording. So now everything that you say, Canon, will be used against you. So just remember that. In a, in a court of law <laughs> or public opinion. Flatulent Steve is with us today. Hey, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're off to a roaring good start today. I'm aren't sorry. We? I'm sorry. <laughs> 12 years old here. Literally. <laughs> Yeah, before we came on, we were talking about ponytails and yeah. on men. So that should just Men's tell you whole thing yeah. is, is starting. For the record, Joe Shaw has never had a ponytail, but no. pretty much everybody else in the room has. So with that, um, I don't judge people with ponytails. That's fine. I just okay. don't think it would, it's fine. wouldn't be a good look for me. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, as long as they aren't too moldy, which is coming back apparently. So. Oh, good. I was saying to Dana, so I'll share this. I should not be sharing this on a podcast nobody cares about this but dana and i were watching something the other day and uh something glam came up i think it was we were talking about david bowie and i said if i had been of age during the david bowie glam period i would have definitely been that fat guy glam guy that you see in all the videos from the mid 70s you know you know the guy i, I would have been one of one of those guys not you know just because I thought that was that was pretty uh, provocative. Um, I liked it. So would you have owned I spandex? I wouldn't have been able to get away with it, but I'd have done it anyway. Yeah, no, Joe. It's it's never too late, Joe. No, see, <laughs> live, live now, your best, now, live your best life, Joe. Come on. Yeah, no, but I would have been that guy. There was a Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn um, Art Museum, uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music or Art Museum or something, a number of years ago. And we had actually seen the same exhibit in Berlin and it was amazing. So it was a lot of Bowie's outfits and those things look like a size four toddler could wear them. They are so tiny. I mean, I think David Bowie weighed about 85 pounds soaking wet. So trying to duplicate his look would not have been easy. Cocaine will do that. You guys got You guys got to go to, you should go to Graceland. You want to see, you want to see some outfits. Oh, are they, are they shockingly tiny? Oh, they're, no, they're, they're, yeah, they're but they're not that big either. You know, Fat Elvis was you know was kind of normal by today's standards. Yeah, that's know? probably true. Right? Now, Steve, one of the, one of the things I've always aspired to, which I don't, I, I guess you can still do, but it's not the same. I always wanted a nudie suit. You know, the, oh, the, the country western. I knew, I knew you would know the reference. I don't. That's the country western suits. Like Conway Twitty, Conway yeah. Twitty suit, you know. Okay. But really cool rock guys had them too. Like uh, what's his name from the Birds? Graham Parker. Uh, Graham yeah. Parker. Graham uh, Parsons had one um, that had mar marijuana leaves all over it and stuff. Um, but the nudie suits are the ones that have the the really cool embroidered designs and stuff. I I would have. But I think the guy the guy who did them is long dead. Although long I think the dead, yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could pick one up at a thrift store. 
None of this has anything to do with our topic. Today. Not at all. Yeah. Well, no. why don't I just introduce us so we'll try to get us back on track here. Should we do, should um, we do like a take two of this? <laughs> no, we're good. Nah, just keep rolling. Okay. <laughs> So hitting the record button this week is like maybe something like get back will come out of it. Instead of hitting the record button once again this week is Bill Sutton. Hiya, Bill. Good. Hitting the record button over and over again. Um, hi, Anad. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. But do you have one of those beep buttons, you know, to like kind of like, Nee-. I don't know. We need to get one of those. I'll see if I can find that sound effect. That would be um, cool. Joe Shaw is here as well. Hey, Joe. Hey, we usually get this out of our system before we hit record is, is what happens. This time we just hit record early. Hi, I'm Joe Shaw. I'm executive editor of the Express News Group. That's because I'm not even talking about what we were talking about before we hit record. So right. we'd already kind of gone there, just never got out of it. And um, I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining this week is Steve Coates. Hey, Steve. How are you? I am well. You, you have a, a, a nice red scarf around your neck. Um, you know, one, one would think it's 24 degrees out, but it's not that cold out. So are you- uh, My house it is. Yeah, well, he, heating oil has gotten very expensive. So I'm guessing you just let it run dry. Is that right? I keep it low. <laughs> Suddenly. <laughs> anyway, so today we thought we would talk about our most recent Express session, which was held on um, March 10th at the American Hotel in Sag Harbor. And the topic was one that um, I think is really interesting because there's just so many side discussions to it. And it's the idea of whether or not a paid emergency services department out here, ambulance and fire department is sort of inevitable because right now, and for the last many years, the East End has relied on volunteers to man these positions. And it's getting to the point where the ranks are being thinned from these departments just by a lot of people aging out and not a lot of younger people in the community have been able to afford to stay in the area and pick up where their elders have left off. So somebody want to jump in and talk a little bit about who was at the session and what the general feel was as far as what's happening. I will say this in it, that um, the question we posed to sort of set up the session was, you know, are paid ambulance and fire departments inevitable on the South Fork? And I would suggest that what we learned, a lot of times those, the questions we pose to start the conversations at the express sessions are just meant to be provocative. And I think we very quickly sort of moved off topic because the answer to that is <clears throat> that the, the ambulance companies almost all have a paid element at this point. They, they have mm -hmm. paid personnel Correct, yeah. who, who answer calls. Um, not every department has a full uh, round the clock coverage with paid personnel. I think Sag Harbor mentioned that they are roughly six to six, right? And is it just one individual who's paid on staff? No, I think they have, I think they have two people, right, Steve? Sag Harbor's got two. And I know for instance, in Bridgehampton, they have a paramedic on duty 24 seven. Mm. So are these, I, I'm also wondering, are the paid people, people who've already been living in the community for a number of years, or are these no. new hires that were brought out specifically? They're often from up island. You know, Interesting, okay. People who, who work around the island, different places, a day here, a day there, because yeah. there's not a lot of full-time open you know, positions. 
Some of them are from here too, though. They're they're all part time, and so so the thing is, our local guys and gals go up island as well to serve. So there's sort of a rotating cast from all over the island. And I thought it was I thought it was interesting too that a couple of them were talking that, um, in order to you know to to fill out the schedule, if they're working a shift or two for each department, they're working for multiple departments um, in a week sometimes um you know two two or three shifts a day um for for different apartments departments so going from one to the other to the other um working 24 hours or 36 hours straight sometimes depending on what shifts are available so is their role is their role primarily as um an emt as a driver of an ambulance as a dispatcher just wondering where these paid positions are being filled they're usually paramedics they're paramedics Right, because you need you need to make sure that you have somebody who can who can offer care on it at any given time. If that call comes in at three o'clock in the morning or ten a.m. in the morning, when most volunteers are working their regular jobs, so that's usually when they're trying to pay, use the paid staff. Is probably during the daytime when um, when people are at a normal day job, the normal volunteers couldn't be there, right? Well, no, they're. I think no, they're they're there um, as first responders. Uh, so if you live in Springs, for instance, and you think you're having a heart attack and you call 911, the first responder vehicle pulls up and that's usually man, a, a paramedic or a, they have, there's a lot of different categories. I mean, but a paramedic being the top of the heap and that person will typically you know, begin care. And then while they round up an ambulance crew, because it, you know, it, it, you know, it it does take a little time. I mean, actually, I mean, it's 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 a pretty amazing, um, and I can speak as a witness to this because my wife is an EMT with with Bridgehampton, and when she's on call, the 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 pager goes off, and it's pretty amazing that usually within two or three minutes they have a crew assembled and they're on their way to the firehouse, um, which you know is is a if, if an ambulance is there 10 minutes after it's called or 15 minutes, even that's generally speaking, you know, and I, and I'm just throwing these numbers out there, by the way, right. but that's, it's a good response. And I think it's worth pointing out that in a lot of companies, the paramedics are volunteers too, that, that, that there are volunteer paramedics who answer calls. Um, they supplement that they, they do the overnights, they do things like that. So it's, the, the volunteers are often providing that care as well. But the problem is in so many departments, and we're just talking at the moment about ambulance companies, I think there are enough calls and especially seasonally, because when you think about how the population explodes in the summer, that there just isn't enough volunteer uh, labor to go around. And, and the, the secondary problem, which we've already started talking about, is that none of the departments are really, they don't really have the budgets to pay a full-time salary. They don't have the, the money to really pay a proper salary, I would say, if, if that were the case. And so, you know, the, the, the men and women who are doing the paid jobs at all of these departments, and, and as we said, they're like itinerant. What did somebody say at the, at the it's, they're like, uh, they're like, um, um, 
they're like tra transient laborers. Right. They, they go from department, department, department to, to fill these jobs because they have to make sure they have enough hours and enough money to, to make a living. Um, that's part of the problem too, is that even the paid answer here isn't much of an answer if you're one of those paid people because they're being forced to, to shoulder a pretty heavy load. You're working an hourly wage without any kind of benefits right. or, or, you know, that type of thing, no medical insurance. So, and, and I think the issues are the issues are the same for the fire department, but it's a little different for the fire department. And I think the, the message that we sort of got, I think, was that paid fire departments are probably further away and not necessary, that most of the departments are having trouble keeping members. But the, the question is, what do they do to address that? That volunteerism is still um, fairly prevalent in our community, but they have to figure out ways to keep people and, and to get younger people in um, and to encourage more people to, to volunteer for the fire department. It's a, it's a slightly different um, situation there. And, and, and again, um, when you start to dig down on that, I thought it was interesting that the chiefs are unpaid generally um, in these departments, but maybe they need to be paid in sort of a similar way to the way the ambulance company has a couple of paid members because the chiefs are often the first ones to go to res respond to what are 95% are false alarms or, or you know, their uh, automatic alarms that go off that ends up not being a call, but somebody has to respond and it takes a lot of time and energy for them. And so if you're a chief, you've, you have to be willing to shoulder that level of involvement for no pay at all. So one of the things that came up, up was that maybe um, that's um, something for the future. And Steve, I, I, I think that's something that the departments are looking at, right? I, I have, to be, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I think they're mostly hoping that, that there's someone who's going to step up and serve. I mean, in, in many communities, being the fire chief, I mean, I, I think in all these communities, being the fire chief is a, is a big honor. Right. Um, there's a cachet to it. You know, I mean, it takes, you don't join a fire department and get named chief in a year or two. I mean, it's usually, you know, you've been at it for a decade, 20 years, you know, and um, um, and it's, you know, another issue is that it's it's not the department's call. It's if, if you're in a place like Amagansett Springs or uh, Bridgehampton, which have got you know, North Sea, which have got, um, which are fire districts with a board of fire commissioners. It's up to the, the board of fire commissioners to decide whether or not they're going to pay a chief. To go back earlier, we talked a little bit about budgeting. I mean, in in these these standalone fire districts, I mean, that if you look at your tax bill, the fire bill is usually a pretty small part of your your tax bill. And so I think, you know, there's certainly room. I think if if they need to, you know, to hire some. But I think the the the, the the crisis becomes if you suddenly hire 24-7 fire crew, 24-7 ambulance crew. I mean, that's that's where it would start to get pricey. If you could even find them, too. I mean, I think right. it sounds like this is a, a issue across the country. It's not just yeah. an issue out here. So um, did they talk at all about, about the problems that a lot of volunteer departments are facing elsewhere outside of this area? There were a couple things that I... Uh, 
that were raised that I found really fascinating. The first was, and I, I think it was Ryan Murphy mentioned um, that in Pennsylvania, 50 years ago, there were 300,000 volunteers. And today, I believe the number he used was 38,000 remaining. And then uh, another fellow, Matt Sikowski, who trains uh, emergency uh, responders, he mentioned that to this day, Long Island, the two counties, Suffolk and Nassau County combined are the world's largest volunteer fire wow. EMS force. That was amazing. Second place is Australia. Wow. <laughs> All of Australia. Yeah. I just want to mention that Ryan Murphy is the Southampton Towns Code Compliance and Emergency Management Administrator. So yeah. um, I couldn't remember his title. It's a yeah, I can't time. imagine why. He can't, he can't fit it on a single. Why didn't car? that just flow off your tongue? I don't know. So are, are the are the people who were that you spoke with on the panel, are they getting really concerned or do they see a way out of this? Like what are their hopes, fears, and um, concerns about all? I, I think, you know, I know Ian King uh, was from the Southampton EMS um, and he, I believe, is a former fire chief as well. Um, I think I think they're guardedly hopeful that that they can sort of address this, but I think some departments it's a real crisis. I mean, I I, I think that, and you and again, I mean, I think it's the same problem for both ambulance and fire. But in some ways, um, the ambulance calls are worrisome because uh, in some communities, if they can't get a crew together. Uh, it can take precious minutes to sort of trip out to try and find a crew and then to roll over to a neighboring department. There was some talk that there might be some mutual aid that can be uh, solutions in the short term too, where they can more quickly uh, turn a call over to a neighboring department if they can't, you know, cause I think they, they I, what do they call it? Signal three. Uh, I think it was that, that when they're calling for, they need more, more for a crew to send an ambulance out, they have to do that like three or four times before uh, over, I think it's two minutes between each call, something like that. I mean, those are minutes ticking away that, that are really important. And, but, but I think it's important to remember that again, these places all have paramedics on duty and it's not like, it's not like when they, when, when, when someone is stricken, you know, you, you say you've cut yourself with a with a with a chainsaw, or you know, or you had a car accident, or whatever. You know, it's not like that. It's a matter of dragging you and dumping you in the back of an ambulance and racing to the hospital. It's there's a lot of work that's done. I mean, you will see ambulance calls where an ambulance will be parked in front of a house for a half an hour, you know, while they're stabilizing someone. And um, so, you know, I think that to to, to focus just on the on the time between a, 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 a tone or a, you know a, a, a dispatch and a, and a and a ambulance on the way, I think that is is not the whole story, you know. But I I, I there's clearly part of that story though is is that it's the same people responding. Well, and and the volume and uh, the volume of ambulance calls is is incredible, and I think you have some districts. Who was it that said that it was like over a thousand calls a year? Um, you know, for, for ambulance calls, which for a volunteer um, 
force is, is just, that's an incredible number if you think about it and how many times they have to go out for that. Yeah, no, they go out a lot. And if they get two calls at the same time, you know, I'm sure that could be, I guess that's the hard thing. It's like, you can't plan for this because you don't really know what, what people are going to need. The No, that's it. And, and there's a, you know, the number of people in, a, in an ambulance company who are trained to be paramedics or to provide that level of care um, is limited. And, and those people end up feeling so much of the, of the load, I think. And also, by the way, we haven't talked about one of the, you know, one of the reasons it may be difficult to get people to volunteer these days, there's a lot of training involved in both ambulance and fire company volunteering. And, and I, I mean, it's a real commitment and um, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's, it's an open question, I think. I think people really are, especially in this area, very community oriented, but I don't think there's any question that it's a different world now than it was 30 years ago. And people, people are really, uh, it's hard to find the time mm -hmm. to, to commit to something quite that intensive. It's an intensive commitment, but it's a necessary commitment. I mean, it's something we need. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, southamptonsagharborbooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. Just to put a number on that, um, Steve had in his story that <clears throat> to, um, to become an emergency medical technician requires 200 hours of training, including a training stint at a local hospital where you go in and work in the ER and you, and you help out the doctors and you learn you know, emergency medicine. Being a firefighter requires about 130 hours of basic training. Um, and then there's always additional time required for uh, continuous training and departmental meetings and, and that type of thing. So it's not, it's not like you go and you sign up and, and they stick you on the truck and you go put the fire out, you know? Uh, if there's one point I'd like to raise too that we, we didn't touch on at the sessions, um, but that is, I, I've heard it said many times that if you go, if there's a big fear that if you go to a, a paid department, so say you had like a paid fire crew uh, at the firehouse 24 seven, that once you do that, that volunteerism falls off rapidly. Oh, and, interesting. And yeah. I, you know, I don't know if that's just a tale or if that's true um, because it's not been tried here yet, but you can sort of understand, well, you know, they, they, that that's, you know, they're there, they'll handle it, you know, kind of thing. Um, well, I think there would be less urgency if you're the volunteer yeah, to, right. to, to get to the firehouse, but I, I got the impression that for the, the people that, that were on the panel and in and, and the audience, um, that, that everybody kind of sees, sees kind of that hybrid, though, as 
probably the next step moving forward that you're going to have a few paid people here and there mixed in with this sea of volunteers um, just to make sure that you know that you know that there's there's somebody there um, while the volunteers are are coming and and I I, I see the logic in that um, but I, I think it's a it's a real fear that Steve brings up that once you start paying people um, you know then then you lose you lose some of that I would think you lose some of that camaraderie and, and some right. of that that brotherhood of you know we're we're all volunteers we're all in this together we're doing this because we love our community and want to help our community and and be part of of this thing and then it creates though if you have paid members and it's an us and a them and um, right. I think that could be a little tricky. I also wonder, is that is that at all difficult like for new people coming into the area like is it intimidating for someone who's new to the area to show up at a firehouse or, or an EMT you know because a lot of these people have been so ingrained in the community that sometimes coming in from the outside could be difficult. For gen gen generations and generations you have right. three four or five generations that have been volunteers. Right. I also think the point was made that a lot of people who have moved here from the city or from other communities further you know, to the West um, have no idea that we have volunteer fire departments in this region because they're used to having paid departments in urban areas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fair. I think, I think that is something that um, it may be a case of the word just not getting out that, that this demand is, this need is, is really important. Um, Going back to what you said, though, Bill, I think I think there is a logic, though, to the argument that chiefs in particular, because they're sort of the first responders for the fire department. And I think it's important for people to understand exactly how much ta this taxes a chief. These, the number of calls that they get in a week is stunning. The number of calls, but also in addition to that, all the administrative duties that they're sure. doing as chief. And, and maybe if there's an argument for paid chiefs, it's, it's that, that they're doing all the paperwork. They're making sure everybody's trained. They're making sure um, you know, that the department is running smoothly, that, you know, I have no idea what they do, to be honest, because I'm not, I'm not in the department, but I, I think that the paperwork and the administrative stuff um, has just got to be uh, a, a huge job. Uh, it's a full-time job in itself, um, in addition to, you know, going out and fighting fires, and, and in addition to the regular job that, that, that these people are, are working to begin with. But I mean, for every actual call that the fire department has for a, for a fire or a car accident, there's probably a hundred calls that there needs to be a response to that ends up being nothing. It, it, a false alarm. But they need to be dealt with. They're either false alarms or burnt toast. Minor situations. Um, you know, my mother lives in a in a in a high high rise housing for for seniors, and they call it burnt toast. The fire department <laughs> comes. The fire department comes to the building a lot, and it's usually um, some instance like that where somebody has burned the toast or burned burned their dinner or whatever and set off the alarm. And because it's seniors in the building, the fire department is kind of required to come out and make sure everything's okay. And you know, so I I think there's a lot of that going on. The burnt toast. Burnt toast. And they can't and they can't hear their alarms go off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you have to wonder, I, I thought one of the more interesting uh this this like every express session turned into a conversation about affordable housing too. I mean, yeah. 
everyone yeah. does. And, and that's part of the problem as well, that the year round residential community is smaller and different than it used to be. And I think that's part of the equation too. And, and that one of the most fascinating little bits of information to come out of this was that uh, a good friend, John Neely, who uh, takes photos for the fire department of West Hampton beach. And uh, is just a really good guy, but he, he's involved with the fire department. He said that they have actually looked into the legalities of using fire department property to build affordable housing where the fire departments might actually become landlords and maybe mm -hmm. they can they can condition some of that on uh, service in the fire department. And you have to stop and think about that. That's actually kind of genius because the big problem we have with with affordable housing is where would we where would we find land for it? Where would it go? I mean, it's an option. It's an interesting thing to talk about. It it might be um, killing two birds with one stone to some degree, and yeah. or, or or killing two children with one fire truck as kids who are <laughs> playing around. Well, <laughs> I mean, they're the safer drivers, at least. You know, you know, somebody who's driving the fire truck's going to be careful. But that's uh, interesting. Like, is what I mean? Did they talk at all about you know the you know is it is it because they're losing older members? Um, who are retiring, but is it just that also so few younger people who grew up here are interested in coming back here? You know, I don't know if that'll change, even if they provided housing, you know, I just, I just feel like the model has changed the whole idea of returning to the East end to raise your family after you've grown up here. Isn't something that I see a lot of kids doing. And I don't know, did they talk about the next generation at all? Well, so so they talked a little bit about, and, and a, a lot of departments are are reaching out. They have um, they have junior firefighter programs or explorer programs or whatever, where where they're going into the schools and they're talking to kids and they're getting kids to kind of volunteer and 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 to learn. And and I think what they said is that they you know that those, a lot of those kids will then um, after they graduate or whatever will become full time volunteer firefighters. But that's short term because they'll do that for a few years <clears throat> and then they're leaving the area um, right. or they can't afford to volunteer um, anymore or, you know, or something to, to that effect. And they'll take those skills to a community where they're moving to. Right. So but yeah. but if you can get that revolving, if you can get those those kids in the junior programs and, and keep you know, give you a few years of volunteers after that and, and, and you keep, you know, rinse, repeat and, and repeat that cycle and get more kids in and all that. But then you're, that's a lot of training that you're doing, right. um, for not, not a lot of return. Yeah. And I think interesting, Joe talked about affordable housing and, you know, a lot of times when we think about affordable housing, you know, you think about apartments or, you know, or, or small units or accessory stuff or, or whatever and, and what they were saying is so you might be able to have affordable housing and and kind of the same situation have somebody come in for a few years but you want housing for for the long-term volunteer who is going to um you know have a family and and pets and um and a house and you know and, and it makes a commitment to live in the community and volunteer in in the community otherwise you're just going to lose you lose those younger volunteers again in, in that instance. Hmm. So did they say that there was there a huge uptick because of like all the people moving out here during COVID? I mean, that's the other thing is maybe 
they didn't need as many volunteers a number of years ago when this was truly a um, you know summer community. Um, I mean, I imagine that that the demands of year round have changed a lot. That is probably a little nerve wracking. Is that true? I, I don't know if you know the Sag Harbor, for instance, has like 150 firefighters. I don't know if if they had that many 50 years ago. I, I don't mm -hmm. know. Um, but I think that. Well, you talked to the the East Hampton um, chief talked about having. He's got about 120, and, and they have. A, but that's short. Yeah, like 70 short of what they should have. Right. Mm -hmm. That was Jerry Terza. Terza, right. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. and and some departments are in worse shape than others. I mean, as I said, I had asked about my own department here in Hampton Bays, where I live, and Hampton Bays actually has 110 active members on a waiting list. So. Some departments, I think, are doing better than others as far as getting and retaining members. And we, we also talked about that. that some, of that's the make, some of that's the makeup of Hampton Bays, I would think, right, where you have a, a quote unquote more affordable community and you have a much sure. larger population that's and not that, that's your not that anything's affordable yeah. anymore. But no. and yet and yet that I don't believe that holds true for Springs. I, I think that I don't think the Springs Department was ever. I mean, it was, it, it's a newer department. They, they were sort of a spinoff from the East Hampton department in the either the early 70s or late 60s. But I don't, um, you know, I, I don't know if they've got 150, 200 guys because it's a, it's a, it's a more of a working class community, you know, and I do know that places like Amagansett and Bridgehampton are both, you know, they're, they're, those departments have shrunk over the years because nobody lives here anymore. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of it. And, and I, one of the most interesting parts came at the very end of the session when uh, Alex, what, what was the last name, Steve? Because he didn't give his last name at the session. Verdugo. Uh, Ver, Verdugo? Right. He, he was mentioning that we have not really seen. East Hampton Fire Department member. He's in the East Hampton Fire Department. He is, uh, he's, he, came in as a Spanish-speaking immigrant. He's a citizen now. Um, but he said, that's a part of the community that really hasn't been approached to, they don't, first of all, a lot of immigrants don't know that volunteer fire departments are a thing. They don't know that that even exists. Second problem is, as Jerry Terza pointed out um, in East Hampton, they get applications, but he said that, that they require you to be a documented uh, resident um, in order to volunteer for the fire department. So that that's an issue for some applicants. But but as Alex said, I, I think it's just about there's never really been much of a much of an outreach to, to that community. Although Jerry said that that they they have done some outreach into into the Spanish speaking community. Well, and, and I think running parallel to that, you know, goes back to a question that that Annette asked earlier. Um, a, a little bit of, of an intimidation factor if, um, you know, if, if exactly, yeah. you know, and he said some Latinos may not join the department because they don't have that same tradition of volunteering. They don't have that generation after generation and may feel a little intimidated um, by that where you have, you have all these, you know, these guys that where their families have known each other and they've been volunteering for a long time and um, and that can be difficult to walk into that room. Mm -hmm. I would it's think. hard enough for an Anglo to come into a community and, and go down to the, 
go down to the bowling alley, you know, where people hang out or, you know, go to the firehouse or whatever it may be. And, 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 and that the, it's a whole cultural shift. I mean, I, I, I would imagine though, you could go back a hundred years and you could find a fire company in a primarily Irish community that wouldn't be real fond of, uh, you know, there, there wouldn't be a lot of Italians, right? Or, you know, or what about women? Like, I wonder, I mean, I know there are some female firefighters, but I would think that it's really intimidating to be a woman to walk into a firehouse and saying, I'm here. Actually, at the end of, after the session was over, uh, our, our co-publisher, Gavin Manu, his mom, Susan Manu, was there. Bill, you were at the table with her. And she talked about, yeah. she was the first, female firefighter in her department somewhere where it was in the Midwest somewhere. You know, Amagansett. Oh, it was in Amagansett. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, she, I thought it was earlier before she moved out here. I misunderstood that. But she said there was a lot of grumbling, a lot of threatening that uh, I'm going to resign if you put her on my crew. And, uh, and she said, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to respond to the fire if she's there type of thing. Yeah. There was, a, she said there was a lot of that. And then she said there was one call. She responded to it. She was at the scene. She did her job. And it all stopped immediately that, yeah. that she was after that day. She never had another problem. So, I mean, but but, you know, who wants to be the Jackie Robinson of <laughs> each of these departments? I mean, you know, it's it, that's that's an intimidating thing to have to be. And maybe that's it, like, you know, recruiting more women. Maybe, in, you know, they have to make an active effort. I don't know if they, you know, want to do that, but. There are actually quite a few women in in, yeah. in the departments out here, which is which is wonderful. And, and I think they're very much, uh, you know, I, I think they're represented well. But yeah, I mean, we. I, I think, I also think it's really interesting that some of it is about, it's generational. And we had the husband and wife in the audience um, who both volunteer for uh, one of the ambulance companies. And as I said, what, what a, you know, they have a couple of kids and what an example they're setting for their kids. I mean, to, to, to make the point that this is something you're giving back to your community in a, in a really tangible way. I, I, I think, I think that's a message that, so, you know, these things are complicated. I think the issues that the departments and the ambulance companies face are, are they're myriad and we have to tr pull out all the stops to try and address it. I mean, I would even go so far as I was intrigued at the whole idea of, you know, it sort of jumping on top of the whole idea of we have a community preservation fund that is about preserving land. You know, uh, maybe we need to talk about some type of a small transfer tax. Maybe it's 0.1% or maybe it's point. 0.005% that would just generate a few hundred thousand dollars for each of the departments to, to, to add some paid staff. Or maybe they could like an institute in the schools, like in the high schools, actually institute a program where the kids get training and they actually come out at the I, end. They do that. That's, those are the junior programs I was talking about. They do. That. But do they actually do it? Like, is it part of their school curriculum? Like, I wonder if it could be, especially for kids that don't really have an interest in going on to college and leave the area yeah. or those kids that know they're going to work in their parents' businesses or whatever, you know, if you could start them when they're, you know, juniors in, in high school and, you know, your nine o'clock class is fire training or whatever you know like where they literally that's part of their you know they graduate from high school and they graduate from the program having done it like right in the school with the school well it's it's like a community service uh thing right you know they get credit for that. which is why it feels to college students too 
But you know, I just to, to go least, earlier to your reference, your, your comment on the, the the CPF. I mean, I we could segue into a whole new podcast on the future of the CPF in general because I I am I believe that the whole thing is getting to the point where they need to rethink how that money is used. For instance, Sag Harbor is in desperate need of a firehouse and an ambulance barn. And I know there's plenty of state programs that provide aid for this type of, of, of project, but it would be nice if, if there was a, a, a broader base community preservation fund that could provide them some help. And I see, you know, I, the need to purchase vacant land is 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 coming to an end. Well, see, that's this is a topic I want to. I actually want to take take this up with Fred Thiel, and sometime in the next week or two, uh, with luck, we'll be able to sit down. I've actually reached out to him about doing a Q and A on this very subject. That so is it time to start talking about what the community preservation? Because remember, I think it's crucial to to emphasize that whatever the name of it, the community preservation fund. It is about buying land. That was the point of the of the entire setting. That that fund doesn't have a larger, it, it doesn't have a larger mission. It was about buying land. That was the, the goal of that. Maybe it's time to start talking about how that fund is rather than than continuing to to. I mean, I mean, look, I it needs to to still be in place to pay for money that I think all the towns have committed. Uh, and and to to use over the years, they're going to have to continue to pay for properties they've bought, they've they've borrowed in ahead on future revenue. But I think it's a fair question, Steve. That if you really want to talk about, let's forget the CPF as we know it. If you want to talk about a community preservation fund, there are a lot of neat ways you could spend some of that revenue uh, that that came in. Um, uh, it's it's worth a conversation at least. I, it, it's a different thing than the CPF as it's written. I think you, you would need new legislation because I, I mean the intent of the intent of the legislation as approved by um, the citizens of the East End was land preservation, environmental concerns, and Absolutely. and all that. So you would need to kind of switch over to to a new a new measure. Definitely. However. I would point out that the, the voters did revise it to add water quality. They did. So, I mean, it, it, you know, there are ways to do those things, but, but again, I think we should, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't understate that we still have a lot of land to pay for. I mean, a lot of it's locked up, but I think there's money to, there are bills that are still coming due for that in the next, I don't know, 10 years. No. I don't know. I have no idea. It's one of the questions I'd like to ask. So were the, um, the people on the panel, were they, were they um, optimistic about anything? Well, I think it was, I think it was, Ian King said volunteer, volunteerism is, is alive and well. I think he's the one who said that. And I think they were all optimistic. Look, this is their life. You know, this is their life. This is what they do. And, and I think they were all, no, nobody came in, you know, doom and gloom that, you know, that, that the fire departments and, and ambulance crews are, are in trouble. I think they recognized that there's a decline in volunteerism and, and a need for affordable housing mixed in with that. But um, I, I think they all showed a very strong presence in, in you know, in, in what they do. Yeah, I, and I mean, we had a room full of men and women who volunteer and it was really stirring to me because 
uh, you know, we had like, yeah. I'd say we had 40 people in the audience and, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the overwhelming majority were volunteers in one way or the other. And, and, and this entire community is about that. Uh, there's so many different volunteer uh, opportunities, but, but I think, I think some of this is just about talking about it. I think we have to talk about this. We have to make sure people know that they need volunteers in these fire departments and these ambulance companies. I think you have a lot of new people, maybe some, you know, some people listening to the podcast that are hearing for the first time, wait, these are volunteer companies that the, the people who came to my house in that ambulance weren't being paid for that necessarily. I mean, I, I, I think that might be news to some people and uh, yeah. And you need, you know, we need drive, they need drivers, they need fire, fire police, people to go out and put the cones in the road. And someone, someone said their, their newest uh, department member, somebody in his eighties signed up as a new member of a volunteer fire department and, and is, is getting trained. And, you know, I, we, there are certainly examples of octogenarians and nonagenarians who are out there in fire police. And, and there are things that, that every age group, uh, both sexes, you know, whatever physical condition you're in, there are things that need to be done. So, you know. As, a, as an aside, I would like to suggest that we could, we could do a separate, like a, a mini podcast on when to call an ambulance and when not to call an ambulance. Absolutely. I find myself, I remember a case a few years ago in Bridgehampton where someone got their finger pinched in a shower door and called the ambulance. And I do remember one of the, one of the responders who was a little hot under the collar at being called out. He said, well, put a Band-Aid on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, I, yeah. I'm curious too about the, the, we talked about the false alarms. And, and when we brought that up, as part of the conversation, the reaction in the room, I think, told everything. I mean, it's it's obviously a real annoyance. There's got to be some way to start to address all of the false alarm calls. And, and I know that the new security systems that are self-installed and things, they tend to, they must trigger a ton of false alarms uh, that, that end up going to fire departments. Um, and I wonder if if, if there isn't going to be some solution to that. That being said, to Steve's point, maybe think twice before you call the ambulance. But if, if you have an, any, you know, any concern at all, call the fire department. Um, don't, don't be afraid to call the fire department. Yeah. They would rather come out for, for something that's not an issue than for something to get out of control and for people to get hurt. So. And it's a good thing that whistle didn't go off during your session. Otherwise you would have like no panelists <laughs> and then everybody like rushing in the room, right? That's true. However, if a small fire broke out in the room, we would have been safe. Yeah. I think we would have been in good <laughs> Somebody would have yelled theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, God. It was the safest room in town. It's just like during the St. Patrick's Day parade in New York City when all the cops are marching. I'm like, now would be a good time to knock off a jewelry yeah. store, I'm thinking. Or, or a store that sells purses in East Hampton. <laughs> yeah, that's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> there you go. What a, what a good story. So, Bill, the, the video from this event, the, the, the entire thing is available, right? It, it is. Steve's, uh, Steve's article um, on 27east.com. Um, and with that article are several photos of the panelists and, um, and the entire 
um, hour and a half video from, from the event if you're interested in checking that out. I gotta tell you, it was a, it was an interesting conversation. I really, I, it, 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 it was not dry. I, I, you know, I felt like it was, it was a very lively conversation. It's, it's worth devoting some, some time to, if you have any interest at all. And, and we should put a plug in. We have uh, some other sessions coming up, I believe uh, at the time of the podcast, uh, our next one will be April 7th at the clubhouse in East Hampton, when we're going to be talking about dun, 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 afford affordable housing. Uh, finally, but I, we also are planning. And, and that will be at noon. Yeah, it comes with lunch and tickets are probably, they may still be available. I think that may be a popular one. We'll see. But I think we may have a little more room there too. Um, I, I think we're planning a couple of articles about affordable housing leading up to that that are going to be, they're, they're going to make for an interesting conversation. Let's put it that way. Can I add one more thing here? One of the things that Ryan Murphy mentioned, he, he talked about how you know, will it be paid responders? And he said, well, the flip side is that it'll be unpaid. Uh, will it be professional responders? So the flip side is that it will be unpaid professionals. And I think that's very important sure. to keep in mind is that the people who do yeah. show up know what they're doing. Yeah, a volunteer does not mean an amateur in this case. These, right. these men and women are, are very well trained and people should, should realize that. They're getting great service from these departments and Companies. I just remember that the the the, la the Sag Harbor Cinema Fire that yeah. was like it was incredible. There's so many <laughs> so many examples of 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 that. I mean, it happens all the time, and and they're just really terrific. At, you know the but I would they need help, and I think that's the the bottom line. And people around here really appreciate that when people do that too. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27east.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.